that just Friday we went live with our associate pastor of worship search. And uh, we're going to play a video in a minute. I want you to see what, what we're told over 5,000 candidates will see. Um, and, and please, please, we're asking you to do this. We're going to put this video and the job description up on our website uh, and up on our Facebook page and social media this week. When you see that pop up, will you please share that? Um, Vanderblumen, who's the consultant that we're working with, they made a really good point that you may not think anybody in your friend group has anything to do with a search for a worship pastor, but you never know who knows who. And we want this to reach the masses, cast the net far and wide. So watch this video clip and then we'll, we'll pray and jump in this morning. Let's watch this. There's this saying in Montana that defines our mountain culture. It's just two words, get lost. And we say this for good reason, that the Northern Rockies have plenty to get lost in, whether it's hiking or biking, fishing or hunting, skiing or snowboarding. Adventure and exploration are a way of life here. And as a result, we're the fastest growing micropolis in the nation. We have over a million tourists that come to Bozeman every year. And it seems like we all come here searching for something, a better quality of life, a different pace, a new start. But here at Spring Hill, we believe it's not getting lost that brings fulfillment, it's being found in Jesus Christ. And so that's really our vision. We've said we are a church to call home, where relationships flourish, generations connect, and neighbors are loved for the glory of God. Spring Hill began over 100 years ago with people on their knees praying for the lost. And a lot has changed since then. What was once a small church under the Bridger Mountains is now a two-site church miles apart. But still today, we seek to be a church that welcomes you as you are, knowing that God loves you enough not to leave you there. So we're looking for an associate pastor of worship who will be that host in bringing the lost home. Your role begins on Sunday mornings as you lead God's people in worship, and it continues throughout the week in sharing the pastoral duties of caring not only for this flock, but for the valley that God has entrusted to us. So more than anything, we're looking for the heart of a leader who is humble and yet confident, who is gifted and yet collaborative, all for the sake of lifting high the cross. Because for us, it's as simple as this. Lostness is no destination. The wilderness leads to weariness and anxiety and fatigue. So we wanna be a church for this valley to call home. If that gets you fired up, we would love to have you join us in what God is doing in our midst. And we're praying for you already. You guys catch how Reed snuck in the potluck? Good job, Reed. That's an important part of who we are. Uh, we are so blessed to have Reed and his video skills at Spring Hill. And uh, thank you for what you do, buddy. Uh, Reed turned that around. We were told by Vanderbilt we had about 24 hours, and Reed turned that around and made it look good. So thank you, buddy, for what you do. Let's, let's, uh, let's commit to that, though. Let's commit to praying for that person as we promised. And uh, let's do that right now. Let me pray for them. God, we just ask, Lord, that you would continue to um, have us live into this vision, Lord. And we know that the next steps are our new staff that will help resource and equip us to, uh, to do your will. Um, God, so we just pray right now for that leader. Um, God, we pray that um, as they stumble across the site or see something on social media, God, that you would just tug on their heart. Um, Lord, we pray for wisdom for our search team as they have candidates come to us later this spring. Um, God, would you just um, give us discerning hearts? Lord, would you help us to move slow to, um, to, to God, to, uh, to be deliberate in this process? 
Um, God, and we just pray that that individual, they would come here and become a part of this fold. Um, Lord, that we would continue to lead in this new direction that you have for us. God, we thank you uh, for all the good things that you're doing in our midst, Lord. We just pray that you would continue to help us put up those sails and catch the wind of your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So let's turn our Bibles then to uh, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look at chapter 5, and uh, a familiar verse. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16. Hear now God's word. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So over the last four weeks, we've talked at length about the how and the what of this new vision that we have together, the how and the what. Um, we've said that we're a church to call home. We want to be a church where relationships flourish, where generations connect and neighbors are loved. And yet we come to the end of this, this vision rollout today, and we're still left with this lingering question. In fact, I've heard some of us ask it over the last few weeks of, what does this vision really mean for us? What, what is the end game here? You know, it's one thing to put the thing on paper and to say this is who we are, and yet it's an entirely different thing for us to actually live this out and watch it change the direction of who we are as a church. And what I love about today's lesson is that we're no longer talking about the how or the what, but today we're focused now on the why. Why does this vision matter? Why should we care? And, and, and to find that answer, we land in this fifth and the most important part of who we see God calling us to be. We've said this, no matter what we do as a church, we now do all of it for the glory of God. All of it for the glory of God. We talked a few weeks ago about how uh, the hand without a thumb is in trouble. That, that fifth part we've called the hand. And to lose that thumb would be to lose your dexterity. It would be to lose your grip. And so this fifth part of our vision is the thumb that holds the rest of who we are together. Without it, we're really just left with a bunch of how and what, but no why. So whatever we do from this point forward, we do it for God's glory. So in our lesson today, Christ is gathered with this crowd up on this hillside, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and these early followers of, of Christ are gathered around him, and they're listening intently to find out who this rumored man is. He's giving what's been called the inaugural address of his ministry. We know it is the Sermon on the Mount. And from the very get-go, he tells this crowd, you are now a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. Don't miss this nuance. He doesn't say, one day you will be the light of the world. He doesn't say, you know, now that you follow me, you should really be that city that other people look to. No, he says, from this point forward, you are the light of the world. Think about that with me for a minute. Jesus is in the infancy of his ministry. This is just the beginning, and yet from the very get-go, he wants these followers to understand that you now have the light, therefore you shine the light. 
This is their what and their how. But as I said, today our focus is on the why. So let me ask you, did you catch the why of Jesus' lesson? Christ tells them, you do this. You do this so that the world might give glory to the Father in heaven. That's the entire purpose. In fact, that's the entire purpose for our existence as the church. We do everything for the glory of the Father in heaven. And yet, here's the problem with that. Um, We live in a world where the concept of us living for somebody else's glory besides our own is ludicrous. We are conditioned from early on in birth not to live for God's glory, but to live for my glory. And I've heard it said like this uh, by a professor of mine, uh, Mark Sayers, who's in Melbourne, Australia. Um, He says this, he says, we want the kingdom without the king. We now live in a day and age where we want the kingdom without the king. And if you want a good barometer for this, you might start with politics. I'm going there, so buckle up. Go back with me to 1860 for a minute. You'll remember this decade brought massive upheaval in the United States. In just 10 years, we saw the abolition of slavery, we saw an all-out civil war, and we saw an assassination of a U.S. president, Abraham Lincoln. And back before all the chaos began, um, Abraham ran his campaign on a really simple premise. His slogan was down to earth, it was concrete and tangible. He said this, he said, vote yourself a farm and horses. Pretty simple, right? If you want a new homestead, vote for Honest Abe. That was his slogan. And as you know, it won him the election. Four years later, things are a bit more tumultuous and he runs a second time, but this time his slogan is even more creative. He tells the masses, you don't change horses midstream. That's simple. We're not done yet. You don't change horses midstream. And if you track presidential campaigns throughout the next century, you will find leaders of our nation time and time again running their races on concrete and straightforward principles and ideas. Many of them shape the course of the history of our nation. Woodrow Wilson's slogan, vote for an eight-hour day. If you vote for Woodrow Wilson, you've aligned yourself with a 40-hour work week. Herbert Hoover, he said, you vote for me, I'll give you a chicken in every pot, and a car in every garage. And I give us this brief history lesson because I want us to consider how much our world has changed. See, somewhere along the lines, it was no longer about the homestead or the car in the garage. Somewhere along the way, it became about something far less tangible and far more abstract. Campaign slogans began to morph into something almost indefinable. Eisenhower comes along and he says, vote for me, and I'll give you peace and prosperity. Ronald Reagan, he created this idea of making America great again. And no, I'm not mistaken, it was Ronald Reagan who first came up with that slogan. His his official slogan was, let's make America great again. And politics began to now tap into something far deeper inside of us. They began to pull on this idea of paradise, this this promise not of tangible things, but of greatness and achievement. So Barack Obama comes along in 2008 with a one-word slogan, and it spreads like wildfire across the nation. He said, your vote for me is a vote for hope. No definition, no chickens in the pot, 
no promise of new homes, just one word. Your vote for me is hope. And four years later, he, he runs on yet another principle, intangible, of forward. Hope and forward. And wherever you land on the political spectrum, my point this morning is not politics. My point is that these slogans are brilliant, all of them, either side of the aisle, because they tap into something deep within our culture and deep within us, absent of the glory of God. It hits the soul of every human being, all of us on this planet. If we're set apart from Christ, we are all longing for something more. And here's my point. We live among a people that want the kingdom without the king. We live in a society that wants heaven without Christ. We, we live on this, in this place where if Jesus can't give it to us because we're not sure he exists anymore, then maybe our politicians can. Forget the chicken on the stove. We want paradise. But what happened to the king? Now you may or may not buy into that. Try and put a lot, putting a lot of ideas together. Um, but it's not just in politics. It's also in religion. Anyone heard of the atheist church? Have you heard of this movement? In Los Angeles, there is one gathering alone that now has over 400 people attending an atheist church. And this is the idea. Um, atheist church feels just like Christian church. You come in, there's a greeting time, there's a coffee bar, there's music to be sung. They don't sing about God's glory, they sing YMCA together. There's a self-help speech. There's an offering, a collection taking up for some greater cause. And this is not some anomaly. This is a movement. These churches are in San Diego, in Seattle, in Nashville, in New York, in Virginia, and the list goes on and on and on. And it begs this question, just whose glory are we living for? It doesn't take any convincing to prove that our world is filled with shadows of, of darkness and, and loneliness and suffering and so all of us crave this idea of progress and, and of hope and improvement. And yet somehow in the midst of this realization, we've left God behind. There's this, this mainstream thought that is pervasive in our society that we're just going to do this on our own. And yet as we come to this lesson of Jesus this morning, we come to find that things are more the same now than they really ever have been. In Matthew's gospel, um, Christ walks into this community where even the most religious elite were really not known for bringing glory to God. They were known for bringing glory on themselves. They were so wrapped up in this idea of perfecting their own kingdom that they had left the king behind. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we'll get it up on the screens here. Jesus talks about a people who are praying not for God's glory, but for their own. You see that? They would stand in the streets and they would eloquently pour out these prayers, not so that God would hear them, but so that others might see them as the righteous ones. If you turn to Matthew 6, 16, Jesus then calls out those who fast, not as a spiritual practice, but as an elitist art. It may look like spiritual piety, but, but it's actually religious theater. They were fasting for their own glory. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus then points out the absolute shame of these people who with their trumpet in the streets are now tooting their own horn as they give to the needy. It wasn't enough to serve the poor, you had to look good doing it. And it's in this context of people living for their own glory that God brings this idea of salt and light. 
He says, in a world that has lost its taste, you are now the salt of the earth. In a world that has seen light be quenched, you are now a city on a hill. And you live this way, not for your own glory, but so that others might glorify your Father in heaven. Muhammad Ali was one of the greatest boxers to ever play the sport. He was a three-time uh, heavyweight world champion of, uh, of, of the world. But the man was unstoppable. Late in his career, <clears throat> he was challenged to, to what we know today as the fight of the century. Two undefeated boxers would defend their title for the first time, but Ali would have none of the hype. He wanted to make clear who the king was. So Life Magazine interviews him just before the big day, and this is what he says. He says, there seems to be some confusion. We're gonna decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart, I'm too pretty, I am the greatest, I am the king. So Madison Square Garden, March 8, 1971, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier face off for the first time, both unbeatable, and 15 rounds later, Someone had to lose, and by unanimous decision, Muhammad Ali lost the crown. Just imagine Jesus saying to us, you are the light of the world. And, and by the way, when you shine that light, do it for you. Do it so that others might see you as the king and, and, and put their hope and trust in you. Do it so that they might know how awesome you are. And on the one hand, we know that's ridiculous. And yet on the other hand, these are the days that we're living in. We turn on the headlines and we hear stories about abuse of children and murder of loved ones and corruption and greed. And yet the best answer that society can hand to us is to build this kingdom absent from a king. Jesus tells his followers from the very get-go, if you live an apprenticeship to me, you have to understand three realities. You are light, you are salt, and you now live for my glory. You are light, salt, and you live for my glory. I'm sure many of us have heard that concept of a city on a hill a thousand times, right? Like, in fact, back to politics, our politicians use this uh, in just about every campaign to point to America as that city on a hill in the world. And it wasn't until Jen and I were standing right in this place of Jesus' sermon uh, near Jerusalem uh, that this idea really came alive to me. In Israel, our professor pointed across the lake and the hillside to this, uh, to this hillside out in the distance, and he told us, he said, you know, in Jesus' day, you really didn't want to be the city on the hill. That would make you a target, right? Because night would fall, and the city on the hill would be lit up. People would see it. You wanted to be a city in the valley. That would keep you far more uh, protected from the masses, and to shine your light was also a really radical idea because today we have street lights and headlamps and light bulbs, but back then, nightfall was pitch black. Even just that tiny little lamp in your hand could be seen far, far away. And so the danger here is twofold. We either hide our light so as not to be seen, or we shine it so proudly that we begin to actually enjoy the attention. And the danger is if we're not careful, we'll buy into the lie that this life and this light that we have is for our glory. This is why we have promotions at work and community award ceremonies. This is why we have galas for fundraising and trophies for kindergarten soccer teams. We love an attaboy. And there's nothing wrong with that, and yet Jesus reminds us in John's gospel, look at this in chapter one, that he's the light of the world. 
we're just mirrors of that glory. Back in 1816, Ireland had this, this real problem. I don't know why I'm stuck in the 1800s today, but go with me. Um, they, they were trying to survey landscapes by using reference points up on the mountaintops. But this fog was constantly settling and it made it nearly impossible for them to find the peaks of the mountains in order to survey the land. So back in 1816, this guy named Thomas Drummond invents something called the Drummond Light. Anybody heard of this? This light used limestone that would be heated up so brilliantly that this ordinary rock would shine for hundreds of miles away. It would pierce right through the fog. The operator would focus the light with a mirror, and that was it. Later, it was adapted for theater. That's where we get this concept and this idea of the lime light. And yet, without the fuel heating the rock, limestone on its own would be worthless. There is a cause to our light. There is an originating force, and it's not us. John the Baptist said it like this. He said, Christ must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus doesn't just call us light. He describes us in his salt. Look at this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I understand this firsthand. Jen came home this week so proud of uh, an entire brick, like a gallon-sized thing of salt from Costco. That's how much we love salt in our house. Jen reminded me as I was laughing about this that our, our little girl, Addie, right, right by the time she turned two, she would, we had this constant problem. She would grab the salt shaker and just lick it before dinner. Absolutely disgusting. But just consider with me for a minute a life without salt. Salt does so many things. It's a preservative. It breaks down ice. It kills bacteria. But I think more than anything, what we need to remember in the context of our scripture is that salt stands out. It is far different than any other seasoning that you put on your food. In fact, salt really exists not for itself, but to enhance the flavors of the rest of your food. If salt were just white sand, what's the point? We would never put that in a salt shaker on our tables. We would literally hate salt. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, we are to call to look and act and think and be different than the world. To point to a reality far greater than me. That means living not for my glory, but for his. Back in Genesis, you might remember the story about a brick tower that the people of Babel began building for themselves. They had all the right bricks. They had baked each of these bricks to perfection. Somewhere along the way, they realized, man, we are really, really good at this. And so they become so focused in their own glory that this entire construction project somehow goes off the rails. Look at how they describe their end game in Genesis 11:4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. They wanted a kingdom without the king. They literally believed they could build themselves a tower to heaven. And so God scatters scatters them across the earth, changes their language so that they might come to know that his name, not theirs, is among every name. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You do good deeds, certainly so that others might see it, but only so that you can reflect and point back 
not to your glory, but to his. I grew up in a family of all boys, as you know by now, which brings a lot of male ego, right? Everything that we did was a competition growing up. All summer long, it didn't matter. It could be sports, could be wrestling, could be grades. My mom's famous saying all summer was, boys, take it outside. We'd go outside to see who top dog was. And I also remember, though, that my mom loved me enough time and time again, probably thousands of times. I hear it in my mind still today. She would give me that look, and she would say, come here. And I would walk over to her, and she'd tell me, Ryan, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. It was King James Version. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. So we're asking this morning, where is all this leading Where is this vision going? Where is this life headed? And this is it. All the logos of every church, even the name Spring Hill, and every ego that we bring as Christians to this dance will all disappear one day. All of it. And it will only be Christ. The glory of God will eclipse all of it. And the book of Revelation lays this out clearly. Just let me invite you to close your eyes and listen to this. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You get a foretaste of it. We are a church to call home where relationships flourish, generations connect and neighbors are loved for the glory of God.